Let me pray with you, and then we're going we're gonna to do some Bible study. Father, we thank you for your presence, that you never leave us, that you never forsake us, that we are never away from you. If we ascend to heaven, you're there. If we make our bed in Sheol, you're there. If we take up the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there you lead us and your right hand shall hold us. So God, you're always with us and you're with us now. We pray that your spirit would uh, take something that we see from your word and encourage us today and help us to be better stewards of life, of time, of spiritual resources, Lord, of good stewards of opportunities that you provide for us. And God, that we uh, would be known as people who are faithful, faithful servants, faithful stewards. Moreover, it is required of servants of Christ to be found faithful. Let that be true of each of us, that we'd also be faithful to your word. So we thank you for this time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our reading this week takes us, uh, we're going to finish up Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, so chapters 14, 15, and 16, and then uh, we'll get over in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. Um, so just, just not going to take a lot of time, but 1 Corinthians is a very uh, practical letter where Paul provides instruction to the church on how to address some issues and some problems that were, were threatening the, the church's health. And so we, we, as we went through this, just to, uh, we started seeing things that were happening in that church, issues like division, uh, schism, um, a lack of unity, um, hostility, among each other's brothers and sisters in Christ. They weren't getting along, and they had taken up sides against each other, some of Paul, some of Cephas, some of Apollos, and the church was kind of divided, schism. And there were issues of uh, sexual immorality that was going on in the church, 1 Corinthians 5. There were, 1 Corinthians 6, there were lawsuits. They were wrangling with each other over business dealings, financial issues, suing one another. There was chapter 7, marriage issues, divorce issues, remarriage issues going on in the church. Um, and so you see these things happening there. Um, <coughs> uh, <coughs> abuses surrounding freedom. They were, they were liberty in Christ. Uh, perhaps some of them were taking on the mindset that um, what I do is between me and God is no one else's business. I have the freedom to live however God lives, wants me to live. And so he, he dresses Christian liberty and freedom. And so while Paul says, while you may have the freedom to do those kind of things, you're forgetting that some of your decisions and choices and actions also affects your brother and your testimony, and it might cause them to stumble. And so uh, being careful with your freedom and your liberty. 
uh, being willing to relinquish rights. And then there was abuses in the church over their love feasts. They were coming together for, for Christian fellowship, having meals, following those meals up with taking the Lord's Supper. And some of them, when they would gather, they were getting drunk. And then they were abusing the Lord's Supper, um, um, neglecting to take communion, the Lord's Supper, with certain segments of the church that they didn't like or didn't get along with, so they wouldn't take the Lord's Supper with them. Can you imagine that? So imagine coming to church here, and there's a group of people there that take the Lord's Supper because you don't like them. You won't. You wouldn't take the Lord's Supper with them. I mean, it's just kind of unimaginable for us to think that those kind of things were going on. And then we saw abuses when they were gathering corporately for worship. Their worship services, there were some things going on that were chaotic, um, that were not uh, edifying the whole church. So there was all these kinds of issues going on in the church. And really, back in chapter 3, the first four verses, that's where Paul says, this is the problem. And he said, the problem is, is that members of the church were still acting like babies. You remember us reading that? Still immature. They were still carnal. They were still on the, on the milk of the word, never graduated to meat. Um, you know, and so he said, you're acting childish. You're acting immature. You're acting a, a, like a little kid that's self, selfish and self-centered. Don't little kids do that? I can show you a video uh, this week that we took of my grandson last week. And so he calls me Pops. And so uh, he he likes to play in the dirt with his truck. So he's three and, and his name is Will. So I was down in the dirt playing with Will, spent the day with him. We were just having a good time. And so I decided to build him a sandbox. So we went up and got some uh, treated two by twelves and made him a six by six by six sandbox and mitered the corners and put little seats on that. And well, he 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 didn't like where his dad wanted to put his sandbox. He's three years old, and he didn't like it sandbox over there. And he wanted that sandbox up up here. So of course, pops, I'm vying for him, you know. And say so we we but already through he wanted his way and boy he got a little lawn chair and he sat in that lawn chair and turned his backs to us and he was turning over and looking at us and of course Mindy was Mimi she calls him she said are you upset Will he said yes and she said got this on the video so what are you upset about I said I want my sandbox up here so that's why churches Christians can act sometimes. You know, we can act that way. And so Paul said, the problem is you never matured in Christ. So, so we're going to, our reading this week brings us over to chapter 14. And the context of chapter 14 is about corporate worship. Do you think, do you think there's ever any problems that churches have in their worship services? You ever think that's, have, you ever heard the term worship wars? Don, you've heard that phrase, right? Worship wars, uh, when churches gather together and they, they get unhappy and they have problems over some worship things that happen on Sunday mornings when they gather. Could you think of any examples? Of, I know Paul, I know um, and Don could give us all kinds of examples of churches that have worship wars of, over kinds of things that happen when they gather. Well, this church at Corinth was having some worship wars. And so uh, Paul is going to address that. Uh, so they're gathering for worship. Just one more issue of threatening this church they were facing. 
and it was regarding their, their corporate worship gatherings. Now, go back to chapter 12. Paul's talking about spiritual gifts. In verse 1 of chapter 12, he said, I do not want you to be ignorant, uninformed, unaware, brethren, concerning spiritual gifts. So all of us are to desire, he says, spiritual gifts. So he talks about those gifts in chapter 12. And he says in verse 7, that spiritual gifts, of this is in chapter 12, and I'm using this to kind of set the stage for chapter 14. But 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, the purpose of spiritual gifts, do you have your Bible? You see what he says in chapter 12, verse 7? Spiritual gifts, whatever gift that God gives me uh, as a believer in the context of my, 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 my church family, that gift is always given for the profit of all. So God gives me gifts to benefit you, to bless you, to edify others. And so that's the purpose of spiritual gifts. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that God is the dispenser of the gifts. He's the one who determines which gifts and abilities and talents that each of us have. Um, That's up to the Lord. That's the manifestation of God. He distributes those gifts as he determines fit. And the purpose is always for the benefit of other people. Then at the end, then he talks about um, spiritual gifts. Um, All of us as members of the body of Christ, we're all working together to try to help build up the body. And then at the end of chapter 12 and verse 31, he says, but I still show you a more excellent way. And then he gets over to chapter 13 and he talks about what? In chapter 13, it's known as the what chapter? As the love chapter, that's right. He says, I show you a more excellent way. And that he said, you can't go wrong if you, if you love each other, really love each other. And love always considers the needs and the concerns of other people. That's what love does. You know, when you love, you right? The great commandment, love God with, with everything that you are, heart, soul, mind, strength. Love him with all that you are, all that you have. And love other people as you do yourself. Matthew 22, 37 through 40, the great commandment. So love. And so Paul says, this is the most excellent way. And so he's laying the groundwork for, for their worship gatherings. And then in chapter 14, there's, there's really one main issue in this chapter. And that issue is, what does it mean to be a really strong spiritual person what does a spiritual christian look like what's what's the characteristic of really being a spiritual mature solid person that's that's the main issue of chapter 14 and some in the church at corinth were saying you can tell if a person is spiritual by if they speak in tongues if they speak in tongues. If they speak in tongues, they're spiritual. If they, if they speak with uh, ecstatic utterance, speak in this tongues, this ecstatic utterance, then you, you can know that they're spiritual. They're a spiritual man, a spiritual woman. And, and tongues is the expression. Now, we're going to look at, kind of unpack this here in chapter 14. 
Um, there are churches today that still kind of take this view that if that there's a second manifestation of the Spirit, so when uh, we, we believe that when you accept Christ, you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we just saw in chapter 12, it says in verse 13, one of the first official acts of the Spirit is when you accept Christ, is He baptizes us into the body of Christ. So when you get saved, when you, when you were saved, and I received Christ, converted, regenerative, saved, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the body of Christ. That's what it says, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So what does that mean? That means when you're a Christian, you, be, you automatically become a part of the body of Christ. Part of, you belong to the universal church, the body of Christ. Every Christian belongs to the body. That's why it's important then for every Christian to get connected to a local body. Get connected to a local church, a local body. So um, that's one of the first things of the Holy Spirit. And then there are those who teach that then there's a second manifestation, second expression of the Holy Spirit, a work of grace where you receive more of the Holy Spirit and the, the, the more, when you receive this second infilling, indwelling of the Spirit, then it's manifested by you speaking in tongues. And there's still churches that teach that, which I think is pretty weak. Um, um, first of all, if, if you do believe that spiritual gifts are still, the speaking in tongues is a still a spiritual gift that's operational, the Bible clearly says that not all believers have the same gift. And so why would you single out the gift of tongues and teach that every believer is going to have that one gift when the scripture clearly states that that's an operational gift, not all people are going to have the same gift. So that's one weakness to it. And then the other thing is, um, what what's going on in in these cases? I don't believe is the gift of tongues like you see in Acts two. So, but that's that's kind of the idea, and that's kind of what was going on in the church at Corinth. Um, so, so that's kind of the context. So, if you read through First Corinthians chapter fourteen, you read it, and you read it again, and you reread it, and you reread it and you just continue to dwell on this and try to understand what Paul's saying, there's two things that will begin to emerge from this chapter. The one is, it's obviously in the context of corporate worship. He's, he's addressing uh, something that was going on when they were gathered for worship. And the other thing that comes out, he's making, he's making a point through this whole chapter, and you'll see this word prophecy and edification. The, the, so He's, he's saying, this is what's really important when you gather for worship. And what's really important is that everyone is edified. Everyone is built up. And he says in chapter 14, what really edifies and builds up the entire church congregation is prophecy. He uses this word prophecy. And he says, and he's, he's really contrasting that throughout this whole chapter. And he says, that which doesn't build up the whole church is this emphasis on tongues. Really, that's not, that's not really what should be the focus. And so that's, that's really what he's saying. So, uh, so individual, um, so let me ask you a question. 
if, if what really matters when we gather for corporate worship is edification of other people. You know, do you know what I mean by edification? What, what do we mean when we talk about edification? What does it mean to edify? Miss Anna? To build up others. So let me ask you, when you and I gather on Sunday mornings to worship together as a church family, is your thoughts, is your mindset and concentration on what edifies you when you come to church? Or is it on what God might do to edify everybody else? You think that's a good question? Think that's a relevant question? So an immature baby Christian, which was characteristic of a lot of the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, evidently they're coming to church and they think about corporate worship purely from an individualistic standpoint. What did the church do for me today? What did I get out of this today? Did I like the temperature of the sanctuary? Did I like the lighting? Did I like the music? Did I prefer there was more choruses, more worship chorus? Did I prefer more hymns? Uh, was the sound system too loud? Well, did I like the way Don was dressed? Did I like the way the preacher, the length of his sermon? Did I like, did I like, did I like, did I like? Paul is saying somebody who thinks like that is really immature. They're functioning like a baby Christian. Instead of, gosh, that God's presence was at work and God seemed to be moving and building up the body of Christ. You know, was, was, the, was, was the congregation edified? Was it built up to... And so there's, a, there's a, a place that you get where you think beyond self. And that's what was going on in 1 Corinthians 14. Paul says, tongues edify self. He said... Uh, it might edify you, but what kind of effect is it having on the rest of the church? Because the focus is not just on you. <laughs> it's not just on me uh, in corporate worship. And that's what he's saying. So he said, I would much rather prophesy five words that were intelligible, that built up everybody else, than speak a thousand words in tongues that nobody understands. So this whole chapter, he's, he's really downplaying tongues. He's, he's downplaying tongues and he's emphasizing prophecy. So what is prophecy? Prophecy is, uh, some of us might think it's preaching, to, to prophesy, to preach, to proclaim the word. Well, and that's one aspect of prophecy. You, the word of God being read, and it's kind of like, you remember in Nehemiah's day, uh, when... Uh, uh, the Ezra, the priest, stands and he would read the word and then the Bible says he expounded the word and, and it says he gave the sense of the word so that everyone could understand it and everyone was built up. Well, their prophecy can be preaching, but I don't think that he's specifically uh, talking about preaching because not every member of the church is called to preach. 
So prophecy, I think the context, what he's referring to, you know all the one another's the New Testament uses when you gather together, he's talking about corporate gatherings, love one another, forgive one another, uh, think more highly of one another, uh, forgive one another, um, be patient with one another, pray for one another, all those one another phrases. I think that what Paul is describing here when he's talking about prophecy is that you and I as individual believers, as we gather together in community, that the word of God permeates our fellowship. So whether I'm a Sunday school teacher, whether I'm having a conversation, I'm meeting a, a brother for, for lunch or breakfast, and we're, or we're getting together, that the word of God permeates our gatherings, one-on-one, two-on-two, small groups. That we're, that, and you, does that make sense? So it's just like you gathering with somebody else and you get together and, 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 the, and it's just like God's word just kind of permeates your conversation, your time together. You're talking about the Lord, the things of the Lord, talking about your church, talking about serving, and, and, but, but it's, it's God directing that through, uh, through his word. And that's what builds up. That's what edifies other people. So, so, so that's really what he's emphasizing in this, in this chapter. Um, so does that make sense? Now we could, we could go through and read this, but as you read that, that's what you're going to read through this whole, whole, uh, whole chapter. Um, uh, look with me at the end, and we'll just kind of summarize this. In chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, um, look at verses... Uh, 39 and through 40 here is where he kind of summarized. Let me get there. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 starting um, at verse 39. Therefore, therefore, brethren, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid people speak with tongues, but let all things be done decently in order. So earnestly desire prophecy because he says prophecy is what builds other, others up in the Lord. Um, and he gives, he gives a lot more instruction in there about tongues. He, uh, somebody speaks in tongues, there needs to be somebody interpret it uh, because that's what builds up. If somebody speaks in tongues and nobody in the church understands the thing that they're saying, then that doesn't edify and build up anything. It just self-edifies. And so he's downplaying that. So um, that's what's going on in chapter 14. Questions about that? Does it make sense? All right. Then he shifts over to chapter 15. Uh, most of us are much more familiar with chapter 15 because it's 1 Corinthians 13 is known as, we've said, the love chapter of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15 is noted for the resurrection. The resurrection. And chapter 15, the first four verses, probably provides the most succinct definition of the gospel in the entire Bible. Look at with me, uh, verse 1 of chapter 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand, the gospel. Verse 2, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
And then here it is. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And he says twice there, this is the gospel. It's according to the scriptures that Christ died, was buried, and was raised from the dead, the resurrection. That is the gospel. And the application is, why did Christ die? He died for sinners. And through his death and his shed blood and his sacrifice on the cross, you and I have forgiveness of sins. And through his resurrection, we have the promise of new life. And so the Christian life is both having our sins forgiven, receiving, having the righteousness of Christ imputed to us or deposited into our account. So we have a new standing before God, forgiven, clean before God through the death of Christ. And through the resurrection of Christ, we have new life, new life. And so the Christian life is not just having forgiveness of sins, but the Christian life is also having new life. First, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man, any woman's in Christ Jesus, they're new. They're a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And so it's both forgiveness right standing with God, and then new life. And that's what Paul, uh, we, we saw this in Colossians, put off the old person, put off the old man, put off those old clothes, the former life, put on, put on, put on the new, right? So we're new in Christ, new creatures, living new in Christ. Um, and, and some of you, you, you know, you, you, you guys have experienced this as you, as you, receive Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord, that as you begin to walk with Jesus, that you start uh, liking new things. And some of the old things you don't like anymore. New desires, new loves. My, my, my story when I was raised in church, but when I got to be 16, 17, and 18, I didn't want to go to church. I didn't like church. I didn't want to sit and listen to preachers. I, I just, I didn't like it. And then God began to work in my life and he started changing my desire. Now I like to listen to preaching. If it's good preaching, good biblical expositional preaching, I like to listen to it. I listened to Alistair Begg this morning. Um, I, I like to be with God's people. I like going to church. I like Bible studies. I like, right? I, I didn't, but I didn't used to like all those things back during a certain time. But, so it's an, it's, an, it's an evidence that, you're, that you know Christ, that there's change, and he's producing this in you. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is known as the resurrection chapter. Um, and in verses 12 through 19, he, he really says the heart of Christianity, the heart of our faith is the resurrection of Christ. If you take away the resurrection, then, and if there is no resurrection, if Christ has not been raised, then he says, our faith is futile and we're a pitiful people. <laughs> there is no gospel if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. And in chapter 15, he also talks about 
uh, resurrection bodies, what kind of resurrection bodies we're going to have. He describes that. Uh, there's that, that great verse down there about, O death, where is thy victory? Grave, where is thy sting? He's, Christ has defeated that, removed all of that from us. Um, so that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Chapter 16. And we're going to run out of time here and we'll, we'll, we'll start, we'll end this with, but uh, in chapter 16, he shifts from some doctrinal instruction to some practice, practice. And there's really four things in chapter 16. First, he exhorts Christians in chapter 16 to, to give financially, to give. And then he challenges them to serve then he challenges them to serve faithfully, and then um, he, he has some closing emphasis on loving the fellowship, loving, loving one another. So let's look at what he says here. Look at chapter 16, starting at verse 1 through verse 4, where he gives some instruction about giving. Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, and also as he was going throughout Macedonia, so you must do also. So what was going on here? Well, on his third missionary trip, his third journey, Paul, as he traveled throughout Macedonia and Galatia and visiting all these churches, he's asking them, to give because he's taken up a love offering, a special collection for who? For the saints back in Jerusalem. And then later at the end of this trip, he's, he plans to go back to Jerusalem and, and deliver all this money from all of these churches back to the, the Christians, these Jewish Christians that were still in Jerusalem. So what do we know? What do we know about Jerusalem? Well, we know that that's where persecution began for the church. You, you remember Acts 8, where this persecution begins to grow, and they stoned Philip, and there was a young man there consenting unto Philip's death who was Saul. Saul was uh, approving his death, and then in chapter 9, Saul is persecuting the church, and you see that Christians are fleeing Jerusalem for their lives. Well, there's still some Christians there, and the city had a large population. Acts chapter 11, we know historically there was also a famine that occurred in that region, and so you've got some of these poor, so you've got a lot of poor, poor people that are back in the city of Jerusalem, people that are being persecuted, people that are trying to survive a famine, and so it's pretty cool. Paul says to all these other churches, now I know you don't know any of those Christians, your brothers and sisters in Christ personally back in Jerusalem, but they're having a terrible time. And if you can, I'd like for you to give financially so that we can deliver a love gift from all of you Gentiles back to those Jews, Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. It's a pretty cool picture. Gentiles giving financially to help Jewish, poor Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. So that's the context. That's what he's writing about here in chapter 16, verse 1. 
So concerning the collection for the saints back in Jerusalem, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also, almost make you sounding like it's mandatory. I want all of you to take up a love offering, a love gift for these saints. And then he gives some instructions on how to do it. Verse 2, on the first day of the week, let each of you lay aside something. So first day of the week, right? Discipline. Every one of you put something aside. Give. Storing up as he may prosper that there be no collections when I come. So Paul is saying start early. Uh, there's going to be an offering when I get there, but go ahead and start putting some money away, put some money aside so that you've got something to give so that when I arrive, you, we can bring, bring all of that together. So it's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, well, think about, think about what we're going to do here as a church this fall. We're going to take up a, a, a mission offering this November. And some of you may think, well, I'm going to start putting a little money aside every week or every month. I'm going to put this money aside so that when that annual sacrificial collection of this mission offer is taken, then I've got something to give. So you're being disciplined, you're being consistent, setting that money aside. So that's kind of what Paul is saying to them so that when I come, then you can give it. And then when we get to Jerusalem, we'll deliver that all of that money down there. So that's uh, verse 2. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, Paul, Paul's pretty smart. And so he's saying to this church, these churches, uh, when you give, and let's say it's a pretty good sum of money, Paul's saying, I'm going to let you pick out a messenger from your church that can go along as a witness to make sure that that money, everything you give, make sure that that money gets delivered to those Christians in Jerusalem. It's pretty smart. So there's financial accountability there. Paul doesn't just take and say, hey, take all these money bags himself, right? I, he, hey, he wants to be above reproach. So you all as a church, pick out someone who can accompany me and travel with me so that when I go back to Jerusalem, that you as a church know that your money was delivered. Does that sound smart on Paul's, Paul's behalf? Right. Sounds very intelligent. He's staying, you remember in 1 Timothy 3, uh, an elder overseer needs to be above reproach, blameless, beyond repute especially financially. And so there's a, there's a check and a balance there. That sounds pretty smart, doesn't it? And uh, so I used to tell uh, younger pastors, and uh, I told a pastor that, that I met with here a few months ago because he, he was a pastor of a local church and he could write checks at, at his church where he pastors. And, you know, I'm not really over him, but I told him that was pretty dangerous practice. If you want to pastor for a long, long time and you want to stay above reproach, you need to get yourself out of handling any money. I, I don't, I, uh, I, I would never, 
I've never had access to church checkbooks, <laughs> writing checks. Completely stay out of that. Why? Is it because I'm not trustworthy? No. It's because I won't stay above reproach. So I would never have access to a checkbook. I could never write a check. In fact, the same people who write checks should not be able to sign checks. Does that make sense? People who write checks, you, you, you need to have checks and balances. So people who count the money, deposit the money, there's checks on that. Make sure that multiple people count it, multiple people sign it off, multiple table to the bank. A different person records all of that. A different person writes checks. And then there's other people who sign checks. And the preachers need to stay out of that. <laughs> if, right, to be above a Well, that's what Paul's doing. He said, look, you see that verse three? Look at it again. And when I come, whomever you approve, whomever you choose, you approve by your letters, uh, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. So they can go along. They can accompany your love offering, your gift, to make sure it's there. And if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So we'll, we'll together, we'll take that offering back to Jerusalem and deliver it as a team. So questions about that. Does, do, you, do you think that Hillcrest has good financial practices regarding this? I think so. Um, how many of you have ever read stories about church treasurers at church who embezzled money? You ever hear about stories like that? And they're prosecuted. They should be prosecuted. Um, well, when I hear stories like that, I always think, well, shame on the church. That they didn't put checks and balances into place to make sure that something like that never happens. There should be financial accountability to make sure those things... Again, everything's above reproach, beyond repute. Um, a lot of churches have audits. Nonprofits have financial audits where they go through and they, they, they're financially accountable. And so they bring in outside people to audit books. Those are, all, those are all good practices for churches and for nonprofit ministry organizations. Um, so good things like that. What else do we see in chapter 16? Um, oh... Uh, some final exhortations. Look at chapter 16, verse 13. Paul, this is his last words in this letter. Watch, be watchful, stand fast in the faith. So stand, be brave, be strong. Let all that you, be do, you do be done with love. Isn't that good? Watch, stand fast, stay faithful, be strong. Uh, be brave and do everything in love. Uh, so it's a uh, pretty good, pretty good, some closing words. So we'll stop there. All right.